Uh, our focus in 2020 has been on worship, or as we put it, loving the God who first loved us. Today, um, we're going to talk about uh, how worship of God is connected to God's holiness. Worship of God and holiness. Last couple of weeks, we've looked at um, worshiping the God who gave us nature, the, the wonders and the beauty uh, of nature, and also worshiping the God who gave us scripture. Kind of took as our, our jumping off point some things said in Psalm 19. Today we want to talk about worshiping the God who is holy. Psalm 29 in verse 2 says this, and it's, it's a phrase, a, 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 an imperative that, is, uh, that appears several times in the Old Testament. Here in Psalm 29, verse 2, we read, To worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. And indeed, one of the most fundamental things that the Bible says about God is that he is holy. So I want to start with that, just the holiness of God. The word holy uh, or holiness comes from the Hebrew word kodesh. Um, probably just made Matt uh, cringe because I'm probably mispronouncing that. but the, the basic uh, meaning of the word is to be, to be consecrated, to be set apart as special, uh, as dedicated, uh, just taken from the masses, what's profane and ordinary, and, and set apart for something uh, unique. And, and really the fundamental meaning of this word is, is set apartness or otherness or kind of uh, uniqueness, an utter uniqueness. That's the basic idea behind the word holy. And that's clear in Isaiah 40, verse 25. And, and the context in Isaiah 40 is contrasting Yahweh, the Lord, the true God, with all of the powerless gods um, in the world. And look what Isaiah 40, uh, verse 25 says, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the holy one. So built into the idea of being holy and God being holy is that God is utterly different from every other God and every other thing and every other force, everything in the cosmos, God is set apart. He is utterly matchless and unique. And that's the basic idea of the word holiness or the adjective holy. And we can see God's utter uniqueness, his holiness in several of his fundamental traits or his fundamental attributes. First of all, God's wisdom is holy. Nobody has a wisdom like God's. Down a couple, three verses in Isaiah 40, we read this. Have you not known, have you not heard, Isaiah 40, 28, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. God's understanding, his wisdom is unsearchable. It's, it's inscrutable. It's, no one is privy to that. No one has the kind of knowledge that, uh, no one has an angle on it or an inside take on it. No one has a monopoly on that. No one has a, a wisdom or an understanding that, that, uh, that can compare with God's. His is um, unmatched. It is holy. And the same thing can be said about God's power, not just his wisdom, but his power. You know, there are a lot of people who are smart, but they're not very powerful. God is both. He has utterly unique wisdom and utterly unique power. And this is expressed, in fact, in the rest of Psalm 29 um, that Rick just read for us. I'm not going to read the whole psalm again, but you'll notice that you've got an image here of a storm breaking. And we read about the voice of the Lord in verse, uh, verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. And so the thunder is portrayed in this psalm 
as, as, as the voice of the Lord. I don't know if you think of it that way when you're in a terrific storm that's both terrifying and amazing. In a sense, that is the voice of God. And I remember uh, one time we were, we were at a, a concert, a James Taylor concert at Red Rocks with Daniel and Randy Fox. And right in the middle of, of the concert, the weather had been just idyllic, you know, 75 degrees or 80 degrees that day and sunny. And in the middle of the concert that evening, a, a terrific storm broke out and Red Rocks is up on, you know, some raised elevation and the, the eight or 9,000 people or whatever that venue holds scattered, just tried to go anywhere they could. And the whole dynamic changed. The temperature dropped 20 degrees. People were cowering in fear and running and, uh, this was because of what God did. No one had any control of that. It just came out of the blue. Um, it shatters the mighty cedars of Lebanon. The cedars of Lebanon were sort of like our redwoods. They were known for being really tall, strong trees, and God's storm can just shatter those. And then we have a picture of an earthquake. He talks about Syrian in verse 6. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf, and Syrian, which is Mount Hermon, the prominent mountain in uh, in uh, that part of, of uh, the world, and it's skipping. It's another translation of this is to rear up. And so you've got these massive, uh, presumably immovable, immovable uh, features of, of the earth's geology just moving like a calf, rearing up because of this powerful earthquake. And these are just images of how powerful God is. So we get holy wisdom, holy power, but also a, a unique purity and righteousness in the character of God. God alone in all the universe has absolute moral integrity. And there are many texts in the Bible which tell us about this. Among them would do Deuteronomy uh, 32 verse four, where God is called the rock. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And I believe this, this purity, this utter purity, this perfect righteousness, this absolute integrity is probably why throughout the Bible, so many people, when they come into even near to the presence of God, recoil in fear. They are often knocked flat, uh, even when they uh, approach messengers of God, angels, and, and things God has touched. Um, but I think that isn't because God's holiness is, is, is bad. We shouldn't think of God's holiness as this destructive force alone. It might be more accurate to think of it as because God's holiness is so blindingly good. That's why you and I and any other human being can't approach God. His holiness is too good for us. And I think this point is made really well by Tim Mackey and John Collins. These are the guys who do the Bible Project videos and podcasts and that sort of thing which are really amazingly done in my opinion. I haven't listened to all of them, so I'm not vouching for everything they say, but I listen to a good many of them and, and they are really uh, effective. And they make a, an analogy, they draw an analogy between God's holiness and the sun. Think about the sun. How many of you sit around thinking the sun is really bad? I mean, all we need is a couple of cloudy days and we start longing for the sun. Where's the sun? Where's the sun? In the middle of winter, where's the sun? And when it comes out, people are just pouring out with smiles on their face. The sun isn't something we think of as bad. In fact, it's uniquely life-giving. It's what warms and energizes and nourishes the planet. All the plants and animals depend upon it. But the sun is also 
quite scary if you get too close to it. Anybody want to take a rocket ship to the sun? When are we landing on the sun? When's that going to happen? In fact, if you stare at the sun too long, you can go blind. If you forget to put your sunscreen on, you know, you're, you're going to get a sunburn or worse. And, and it's the same. Is the sun doing the destructive thing or the life-giving thing? And the answer is yes. The same pure power and energy causes both life and destruction. And it really has more, it's more of a function of uh, the, the, the being uh, who is facing the sun or being exposed to the sun than it is the sun itself. And you can see this with Moses at the burning bush. When Moses is in the wilderness of Midian and that odd burning bush, uh, you know, is, is in the vicinity and he turns to take a look at it. And as he approaches it, he hears a voice come from it. And it's, of course, the voice of the Lord who says this in Exodus 3, 5, do not come near. This is a kind of paradigmatic expression of holiness. This is kind of the standard. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And notice Moses' reaction in verse 6. He hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Get a similar reaction from Isaiah when he has that great vision early in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 6. We read in Isaiah 6, verse 1, that in the year that King Isaiah died, Isaiah writes, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Try to picture this. He's only looking at the train of God's robe, like the bottom of, of God's, you know, his feet or something like that. So it's not even a full uh, visage of God that he's viewing. And, and, and there are these, these angelic beings, these seraphim who are above God. And each of them is described this way, six wings, with two he covers his face, with two he covers his feet, with two he flies. And one of these seraphs is singing to the other this song. We just sang it a minute ago, at least our version of it. Uh, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So God's holiness, his absolutely unique and perfect power and wisdom and purity cause unholy people, unholy beings to cower in fear. It's like drawing near the sun without protection. And yet, paradoxically, God's purity, the same purity of God that kept sinners from waltzing into his presence, did not keep God from seeking relationship with those sinners. God wants to bring that holy power and wisdom, and righteousness to bear on behalf of his people. And so in Isaiah, it's really interesting, all over the book of Isaiah, we get this interesting phrase, the Holy One of Israel. 25 times or something like that in the book of Isaiah, we get the phrase, the Holy One of Israel. Now, do you see any inherent tension or even almost contradiction or paradox, at least, in the phrase, the Holy One of Israel? 
One example is Isaiah 43, 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So holiness suggests you can't be of anyone, uh, not least Israel, who the Old Testament tells us would just send, you know, from one side uh, to the other, uh, from the beginning of their history uh, till it's, you know, consummated in Jesus. I mean, they're not unlike the rest of us, but uh, we just have a, a microscope on, on their history in the Old Testament. These are not exemplary people. God didn't call them because they were, they were good. In fact, that point is made in Deuteronomy. And yet God is the holy one, the set-apart one, who is of a certain people. That paradox, I think, in many ways, captures the essence of much of, of Scripture, much of the biblical narrative. And the burning bush story. What's going on in the burning bush story? Of course, Moses does, you know, cower in fear, but the whole reason God speaks to him from this holy burning bush is that he is commissioning Moses to save the Israelites. They're in bondage in Egypt, and their outcry has, has not uh, you know, fallen on, 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 on deaf ears. In fact, it's come up to the ears of a righteous, listening God, a God who executes justice for the oppressed. In fact, God so wanted to have a relationship with these people, this group of slaves, he wanted to make them into a nation that could be his special nation, his special people, and have fellowship with them. And so he established a structure called the tabernacle. This is one artist's rendition of it. But you'll notice what's highlighted in gold there is the so-called Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top. Uh, and in fact, one of the other, that's where God's presence descended in that innermost part of the, of the behind the curtain in the uh, most holy place that only the high priest could go into once a year after having, and only after having done certain sacrifices. Otherwise, he wouldn't live because of the holiness of God. And so 1 Chronicles 16.29 is one of the other places where we read the phrase, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, where we began, Psalm 29.2. This is one of the other places where this phrase appears. And um, this actually comes from a song that King David wrote after the ark has been uh, um, gathered back in. It, it had been taken away, and they didn't have it for a while. And now Israel has gotten the ark back, and David is, is just exulting. He's praising God for this, and he writes this song, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. That's all about the tabernacle, and, and, or at least the Ark of the Covenant, which was the, the sort of heart of, of the tabernacle and symbolized God's presence among his people. So here's the point. What does holiness, the holiness of God, have to do with drawing us into a more worshipful disposition toward God? Well, God's holiness, whether we're talking about his holy, unique power, his matchless wisdom, or his impeccable, perfect character, all of those things give us plenty of reasons to adore him, to worship him. Put simply, he is just the most awesome thing being in the universe. If you're into really awesome things, God is the epitome. And that has to do with his uniqueness, his holiness. Well, let's turn now to talk about the holiness of God's people. The holy, we've talked about the holiness of God. Now, what about the holiness of God's people? Well, God expects his people to mirror his holiness in their character. God has a certain character that's described in Scripture for us that is displayed in his historic acts 
of redemption on behalf of his people. And he wants us to have, we may not be able to approximate his power, uh, his wisdom, but he does call us to emulate his character, to learn what God is like, and as his children, to favor him, we might say. And this is another possible sense, in fact, of, of, of that phrase in Psalm 29, verse 2. The ESV that I have on the screen leaves this somewhat vague, and I think kind of accurately from my study this week. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The phrase in red is sort of vague. Like, who does the holiness apply to? That's the vagueness. It's sort of left uh, a bit nebulous. Is it talking about the holiness of God? Or is it talking about we worship him you know, in a way that we're holy? In other words, don't come to worship him unless you're holy, or is it saying worship God because of his holiness? Is it God's holiness or the worshiper, worshiper's holiness? Whose holiness are we talking about? The, 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 the phrase appears to be somewhat uh, vague, and so the ESV is left it that way. Let me give you a couple other possible translations. The NIV, uh, NIV chooses to, to interpret this as God's holiness. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The phrase itself is just saying the splendor of holiness or the beauty of holiness, as the old King James puts it. It doesn't really specify whose holiness. And then in the NLT, several versions do it this way, in the splendor of his holiness. And then you can look at the New American Standard, which sort of assumes this is talking about the holiness of the worshiper. We should worship the Lord in the splendor of holy array. In other words, it, we ought to be in a holy uh, you know, arrangement, whether it's the clothing or whatever it is, when we approach him. So I think built into this phrase is the possibility, at least, that he's calling on God's people to aspire to the same kind of holiness themselves as we approach God in worship. And whatever this verse is saying, however we interpret that verse, there's no question that elsewhere in Scripture, uh, classically in Leviticus 19, 1 and 2, um, God calls his people to be holy as he is holy. Read with me Leviticus 19, 1 and 2. Are you with me, Gary Fain? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. I am holy. You call me your God. I want to be your God, so you should be holy. I am set apart and pure and have moral integrity, and I, I, I you know, ethically uh, am, am living by um, certain uh, principles, you should too, as the people who claim to be mine. And then Leviticus 19, the whole chapter goes on to apply this holiness to several contexts. Uh, you know, not cheating people. You should be holy in the way that you do business. Um, you should be willing to, out of love, give up some of your profit for the sake of the poor. You know, don't, don't harvest your fields to the, to the extreme edges. Leave some of the harvest for poor wanderers. You should treat immigrants with love um, as you would want to be treated yourselves, remembering that you Israelites were immigrants yourselves. And there's a sense in which cosmically that every human being is an immigrant because we're not where we're, we're going. We're all pilgrims and exiles searching. We're all kind of cosmically homeless, you might say. So in a sense, everybody should have this kind of empathy. And over and over and over in Leviticus 19, he says, do these things, and he applies it to several contexts, and then says, after each of these, I am the Lord. Treat the sojourner this way, for I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. Um, don't glean your, your fields to the edges. Don't harvest all, of, you know, the, to the nth degree of your, your grape harvest or whatever. I am the Lord. Don't use unfair scales and balances. I am the Lord. 
In other words, it's a function of God's character. Holiness grows out of the very character of God. It's who he is. He can't be otherwise. And he, he asks us to aspire to the same kind of, of, of holiness. And this is repeated verbatim. It's quoted uh, in the New Testament uh, for, for Christians. First uh, Peter 1 verse 14 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, quoting Leviticus 19, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And God's holiness sets a high bar indeed. I think a lot of times the reason we, um, we give ourselves a pass, and it's so easy for us to think that sin is a problem mainly, and we, we, theoretically we'd also, yeah, everybody's a sinner. But then when it comes down to it, we often have easier time seeing other people's sins or the sins of other religious groups, other faith traditions, other individuals, other family members, other co-workers, other classmates, than we do our own sins. Why is that? There may be several reasons, one of which I believe is we have too low a view of God's holiness. And so we kind of think we measure up, pretty much. My sins aren't as bad as yours, they're not as frequent as yours. Really, we're just not seeing how lofty the standard, how high the bar of God's holiness uh, has been set. Let me just give you one sample from Colossians 3, and I think this will be kind of universally indicting. Colossians 3, this is Paul writing, and he's basically saying we need to take off certain kinds of clothes, uh, the former clothes of immorality and unethical behavior, just the way the world operates, and we need to put on a different kind of clothing. That's the language here. Put, uh, put to death certain things. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, um, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So here we've got sexual sin and materialism, greed, loving things too much, loving money too much, loving uh, the, 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 you know, your, your job and the things it brings, or sexual impropriety and immorality. He says those things have got to be put to death. In other words, if something's dead, it's not, you know, it's not still, uh, there's nothing. I mean, it's gone. Absolutely, right? This is a binary proposition. It either is or isn't. How many of us have put those things to death all the way? Colossians 3.8, verse 7. In, in these things you once walked before they were Christians, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Here's a new class of sins. Anger, wrath, malice, slander. I mean, speaking badly of people. Obscene talk coming out of your mouth. All these things must be put away. That's, again, very complete and total language. How many of us never have a problem with anger or wrath or slander? And then in Colossians 3, verse 13, he requires of us, not for, of super Christians, just every Christian. It's Christianity 101, a kind of generosity with, with, uh, toward others in terms of our compassion and our empathy and our ability to forgive them readily. Look at this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, here are these traits, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. He says, that's what the Lord has done for you, so you must also forgive. So those are just three areas of examples from Colossians 3. There are many, many more. How many of us fail even that list? God's holiness is a high bar. 
And wouldn't it be wonderful, think of how wonderful the world would be if every single human being on the planet, without exception, faithfully complied with all of God's wise, moral, and ethical laws. If everybody did that, we wouldn't need lawyers or policemen or the military or anybody else who has to enforce anything because we just would naturally do it all. It'd be a wonderful world, it'd be a paradise. But people don't comply with the will of God. Moreover, even God's own people fail to be holy. You and I fail to be holy. We're in big company. Doesn't make us feel any better because they're not our standard. God is. But Isaiah appears to me to have been a pretty good dude. And look what he says after he sees this vision of the holiness and the glory of God. Holy, holy, holy. Three times, which is a Hebrew way of saying perfect holiness. He didn't just say holy is the Lord. Holy, holy, holy. He's utterly, completely, absolutely matchless in his perfection. And the whole earth redounds with his glory. And here's Isaiah's reaction. Now, they haven't even talked to Isaiah yet. They're just singing about God's nature. He's just seen God. I saw the Lord, he says in verse 1. And his reaction is, woe is me, for I am lost. Why? This is what happens when imperfection comes into the presence of holiness. You, you notice what your deficiencies are much more clearly. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Hosea 1 would be another example. Hosea is an interesting uh, book of the Bible. Um, Israel has been, their sin is so rampant, it's been so persistent that, that God is trying to illustrate to them how big of a problem their spiritual adultery is. They've been cheating on God with these other foreign idols, these other gods, and he compares it to a kind of adultery or a rebellious child who, um, despite all the goodness and grace of the parent, just turns his back on the parent. And so God does an interesting thing. He uh, calls a prophet named Hosea to go out and marry a prostitute, a woman named Gomer. And um, we re pick it up here in Hosea chapter one. It's supposed to illustrate, it'd be an object lesson uh, of the children uh, of Israel and how um, wayward and rebellious they, they've uh, become. And so um, God has Hosea and Gomer named the two children, first a daughter, then a boy, with names that would be sort of, you know, evocative of Israel's, uh, or illustrative of Israel's rebellion. So, um, verse 6 of, of Hosea 1, Gomer conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to her, call her name, I don't remember the Hebrew, Lohruhamah or something like that, it's in your margin probably, it means no mercy. Why? Why? How would you like to have the name no mercy? That's your name. Why? God says, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. He is done with them it appears. He's had it. When she had weaned this child, she can, no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Eugene Peterson's The Message Translation uh, ca uh, captures the latter this way. God says, name him nobody, because you've become nobodies to me, and I, I God, am a nobody to you. That's pretty dire. And this is what happens 
when we fail to live up to God's holiness. But here's what the Bible tells us, from one side to the other. It tells us that we all fail to live up to God's holiness. It's not the, what the other people do. It's not what the other denomination, that denomination, or the other people, the other church members, the other family members, or my wife, or my husband, or my friend, or whoever, the other country over there, the other political party, every single human being universally fails to live up to the holiness of God. In fact, Romans 3 puts it this way in verse 11, no one understands, says God through the apostle Paul, no one, not a person, seeks for God. All have turned aside Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So there you go. We got the holiness of God. Have a nice day. <laughs> Just kidding. I mean, honestly, does the holiness of God lead to hope or hopelessness? To answer this question, we turn now to where the biblical narrative was heading all along. And that's to Jesus Christ. I want to talk to you finally about the holiness of Christ. But before turning to Jesus, we need to look at another aspect of God's holiness that we haven't talked about yet. So God's power is holy, being matchless. God's wisdom is holy. In other words, set apart from every other wisdom. It's, it's unique. God's moral character, his righteousness, his sinlessness, perfect, and that makes him holy. But there's another fundamental trait of God that is also utterly unique, utterly holy, and that is God's love. It's frankly incomparable. There's no love that comes close to matching God's love. You think of the person in, the, in, in your life who has loved you the very most of anybody else, unconditionally, but also with the integrity to tell you things you needed to hear when you didn't want to hear them, but with gentleness and tenderness and selflessly sacrificing for you. And really, you felt like this person puts my needs above their very own. Maybe you haven't even met anybody like that. Lots of people haven't. But even if you have, think of the very best person you've ever known. And they don't even have the love of, of, of a fraction of God's love. Simply put, nobody loves this faithfully. Nobody loves as perfectly as God loves. In fact, one of the most common Old Testament descriptors for God is that word that we mention from time to time, chesed, which is used a couple of hundred times in the Old Testament to describe God. It's also used sometimes to talk about uh, actions between people and love between people. It's the word that in the ESV is usually translated steadfast love, meaning God's love is so solid, it's there no matter what. There's an unconditional nature to it. It is steadfast. Some versions translate this unfailing love. Others translate it loving kindness or mercy, things like that. But it's the idea that, that God's love is, is different from everybody else's and that it is enduring. Whoever is wise, Psalm 107, 43 says, let him attend to these things. Let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord. All right? Now, let's go back to this idea of holiness, and then we'll, we'll work in how, this, how God's love is holy. In American English, I don't know whether this is the case with like, you know, English around the world in England and Australia and all the Anglophone countries, but in American English anyway, nowadays, we, we often uh, understand the word holiness or holy only in the negative sense. If I went out on the street and said, tell me what holy means, tell me what holiness means, a lot of people are going to say things like, 
well, holy people are self-righteous or they, they, there's a million things they, they won't do. They're very persnickety, uh, very uptight. Uh, everybody else will do these things. They won't do this. They won't do that. They won't do. It's all in the negative. It's what we shouldn't do, right? Talk about holy, and most people are thinking stuff we're not supposed to do. And that would make you unique. You know, uh, setting yourself apart from immoral conduct or unethical conduct would certainly make us holy because a lot of the world is immoral and does act unethically. So that would make you unique. So that's part of it. It's not that that's not true. It's just not, it's only half of the truth. Another thing that is utterly unique, that is much more positive, is God's divine love. Just like setting yourself apart from immorality makes you holy, so does practicing real biblical love. You know why? Because not many people do it. A whole lot of Christians don't do it. Sometimes they, in the name of God and the cross, are just as uh, angry and wrathful and fearful as everybody else. They just slap the word Christian on it or claim to be doing it for the Lord or the church or something like that. Notice that in Leviticus 19, all those directives, don't cheat with your scales, uh, help the sojourner uh, selflessly, love your neighbor as yourself. That's where that comes from, by the way, second great command of all the whole Old Testament scriptures. Um, you know, uh, helping the needy uh, and so on. All of that is, we're told to do that because he says, I am the Lord. In other words, that's what God does. Isn't it interesting that being holy like God is holy means having uniquely radical love, the kind of love that, that loves the immigrant, that gives up personal profit on behalf of the needy, and so on and so on. And so God has a love that is otherworldly. That's one of his most holy traits. It's one of his most unique traits. The, the other gods that people worship, small g, did not love their people. They had to be appeased and kept, kept from being angry, or you get a good harvest, or a victory in your war, or whatever it was. God comes down and selflessly loves on behalf of his people, and that is unmatched. It is unique. It is holy. And we see this unmatched love of God, his holy love, most clearly in the expressions in the Bible of his grace. One of those is Isaiah 6. The Old Testament doesn't always use the word grace like the New Testament does, or an Old Testament variant um, uh, equivalent, but the Old Testament is dripping with the grace of the Lord. Isaiah 6, so Isaiah is convinced he's doomed. Woe is me, I've seen the Lord in all of his glory and holiness, and here's what happens. Isaiah 6, verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me. Can you imagine his fear? Now he's coming at me. Now I'm, I'm in his sights. You eye of, of, of the woeful, sinful uh, doom. I, here, he's coming for me. He takes a burning coal, does this angel, that he'd taken with tongs from off the altar, and he touched it to my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. The unapproachably holy God has come toward Isaiah, not to condemn this sinner who is unworthy of being in the presence of God because he's a sinful human being like you and I, but he's come to pardon him and to take his guilt away. In Hosea 11, despite Israel's rebellion, this, the, despite the fact that um, God had said, hey, name your children no mercy and not my people, because that's kind of what you are. 
your children, Jose and Gomer, are going to symbolize and, and embody the problem in a graphic way. But despite all of Israel's rebellion, by the time you get to chapter 11 of Hosea, we learn that God actually can't forsake his child. He will not do that. So let's read this over in Hosea 11. Very comforting passage. I just love it so much. Quoted in the New Testament of Jesus, beginning in Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. This is kind of the story of the Old Testament, right? Israel kept sacrificing to the Baals, the Baals, these foreign gods, and burning, offering, and, burn, uh, and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim, another word for it's one of the tribes of Israel, stands in for Israel. I'm the one who taught Ephraim or Israel to walk. Picture a father teaching or a mother teaching a little baby to walk, taking him by the arms, he says. And yet for all that nurturing and care and affection, they did not know that I healed them. And then drop down to verse 8 with me. Look at God's heart here. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man. You know what? We do that. That's why he says, I'm God, not a man, because what do men do? What do you and I do? Nope, you did it. You did that. You deserve it. You know, we, we, we are so, it's, it's tough for us because well, we're, we're, we're us. We're not God. But he says, I, I, I'm not like that. And then look at this awesome phrase. He says, I am the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. God describes himself as the Holy One. Again, what a paradox but a holy one who has come by his own volition to be in our midst. He's among us. He lives among us. Well, God's matchless holy love culminates in Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. As God in the flesh, Jesus manifested God's holiness to the fullest extent possible. Just like we, God is described in the Old Testament, Jesus is described as a person of unmatched wisdom, a holy wisdom. When he finishes the Sermon on the Mount, this is what the crowd noticed. When Jesus finished these sayings, Matthew 7, 28, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Remember the officers that the Pharisees sent to arrest Jesus in, in the Gospel of John? They come back without Jesus, and when they're reprimanded by these Pharisees, that their, their, their response, their defense is, Nobody's ever spoken like this guy. Nobody teaches like him. He had a wisdom that was uncanny, that was not from this world. It wasn't just something he had learned, right? He didn't teach like the scribes and the Pharisees who just adduced the, you know, quoted the people before them and uh, reasoned from the people who had gone before. No, he had this inherent wisdom that flowed from him that was unique. It was matchless. And the same can be said about his moral integrity. There was an amazing statement made in Hebrews 14, I'm sorry, Hebrews 4, verse 15, that Jesus was tempted in every point like we are, yet without sin. Think of that. All the ways that we're tempted. Some of these are pretty vile, things we would never want anybody else to know about. And the scripture tells us Jesus experienced the same temptations, but he never succumbed. Never sinned. That's amazing. And so he's holy in moral integrity as he was holy in wisdom. He's also the one who has this peerless power. In Matthew chapter 4, 
Out on the Sea of Galilee, we learn that even nature obeyed his voice. Just like nature obeyed the voice of God at creation and still does as God uh, regulates it and everything uh, you know, holds together in Jesus, here we see Jesus of Nazareth on the Sea of Galilee. And look, what, look at the reaction. It says in verse 37 of Mark 4, uh, that a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. That'd be pretty scary, right? But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. So he's sleeping through the storm, kind of like Greg talked about uh, a few minutes ago, uh, this calm in the midst of the storm. And so the disciples, it says in verse 38, woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Look at their reaction in verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Even the wind and the sea obey him. So all of this holiness which is ostensibly a good thing, can be scary. It's like flying into the sun, staring at the sun. But Jesus also is characterized by a holy, utterly matchless love. Every other Savior that we can trust in is going to bail on us when the going gets tough. They're going to save themselves. They're going to seek their own good, not Jesus. He likens himself to a good shepherd, like the consummate shepherd taking care of his sheep no matter what in John chapter 10. And he contrasts himself with a being that he calls the thief, who allegedly is taking care of the sheep, but really isn't there for anything other than his own interest. John 10 verse 10 says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's what I want to give you. I want to give you abundant life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. He may have acted like it. He doesn't really care. Jesus, by contrast, says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep because I fundamentally love them. I care for them. And because he laid down his life for us, we can stand in, in the presence, the very presence of the holy God. Hebrews 4, uh, verses 14 through 16 says, sent, now it's kind of talking about the tabernacle temple system with the most holy place and all of that, and arguing that Jesus, by virtue of dying on the cross, has now become our great high priest. And, and attached to him, we can enter that most holy place and be in the presence of God forever. Not just the earthly a copy, the shadow of the real thing that, that heaven and the new creation will contain, but the real thing itself. Since then, he says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. He said, hang in there. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Come into God's presence with confidence, not because you're now holy, but by virtue of Jesus and your connection to him, you are holy. 
You're, you're on the coattails of his holiness. You can draw confident, uh, draw, draw near with confidence to his throne and receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What does all this holy love of Christ mean for us in our daily struggles? Well, it means, it means that we have an advocate. We have a high priest who meets us where we are in our weakness. One who can, as verse 15 says, sympathize with our weakness. One who, has, who gives us mercy and grace, not judgment and condemnation. And so that, folks, means we're not alone. I know we feel like we're alone. We've got all kinds of struggles. Maybe you're struggling with, with, with a certain sin that's been your, you know, uh, your problem for, for years, uh, and you feel so guilty about that. Uh, maybe you're struggling with anxiety. Maybe you're struggling with sadness. Maybe you're struggling with uh, problems at work or at home. Any number of things. I mean, the, the nation, the world is struggling right now. A lot of times we feel in our struggles and our challenges that we're alone, that nobody else has a problem like we have, or nobody else has ever had a challenge like this. And so we feel, we feel that that's unique to us. I read an article the other day, uh, you know, our, our pandemic feels uh, so weird. I can't tell, me, tell you how many times I've said to people in the past uh, couple of weeks or had people say to me, this is just such a weird time, right? Everything is weird. We, we were living in what feels like a unique moment in history, but actually, this is the historian nerd point that, nerd, that annoys everybody, but I can't, I can't not be me. I read an article the other day. Uh, you know, a lot of times the problem is we have a perspective that's like our lifetime and our parents. That's pretty much most people's perspective. And if you're a history nerd, maybe it goes back a little longer. But if you have a broader perspective, um, and I, I saw this in an article the other day on the history of plagues and whatnot, and it was talking about how in Europe, just in Europe, not the rest of the world, so it's only a portion of the world's population, but from the mid 14th century, and I think it was through the late 17th century, so like 1350 to 1700-ish, all right? That's 350 years or so in Europe, there was either a an epidemic or a pandemic once every five years. Think of that. There's either like a local epidemic, you know, in your, your city or your region, you know, maybe you live in Bavaria or, um, you know, uh, Provence or, 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 you know, in London, or there's actually a continental-wide pandemic every five years. So this was normal. It would be weird not to have it. So we're, we're all living in this and go, man, what's going on? What's happening to us? This is so unique. From the perspective of history, if you could bring out every person who'd ever lived before us and, and have them surround us, they'd go, what do you mean? You just got lucky for most of the 20th century um, or blessed or whatever, but th this is not unique. And I think that's an illustration of how we sometimes feel about our personal struggles. We feel like they're, I'm, I'm totally in this alone. Nobody could appreciate this. It's totally unique. And what I want to say to us is, it's not weird to feel that way because we're us and we feel our pain more than we feel other people's. But it's not unique. Here's what is unique. Here's what is incomparable. Here's what is matchless. Here's what is holy. And that is the love of Jesus Christ. Amen? I can't hear you, but I know you're saying amen, at least in your heart. Amen? Amen. amen. I got three in my room here. All right. Love y'all. Thanks a lot.